But I thought that I would just, uh, we would go ahead and I would finish the preaching this afternoon. I'm, we're going to try to get through one more here and, and then we'll be ready to go home. I'll try to have you done by six anyway. So uh, if you'll open your Bibles, please, to Psalm 112, 112th Psalm. I, I really am sorry that I won't be able to be here for the Father's Day uh, celebration, whatever there is going to be next week, whatever we decide to do. But uh, So I thought that I would, I would just speak to a few minutes this afternoon uh, on the subject of being a righteous man. And my intention, of course, was to speak to fathers tonight, but I, I don't see we have too many here this afternoon. So I think the message can go just as well for ladies, even though uh, the righteous man is the subject under discussion. But any time you have righteous people, these kinds of blessings, I believe, will come out of it. Psalm 112 gives us some of the characteristics of a righteous man. And it's clear from reading Scripture that a person who walks uprightly with God will most definitely have advantages over people who don't know the Lord. Psalm 112 is a companion psalm to 111. And in the 111th Psalm, the psalmist is talking about the works of God and all the things that God does in righteousness. And this speaks about how a a man who serves God, who lives for God, will reflect the righteousness of the God that he serves. Well, Psalm 112 gives us the benefits of being a righteous man and of knowing God. So I'll try to be somewhat brief this afternoon as we talk about the subject today. Just stand with me if you would. We're going to this 112th psalm. We'll read the entire psalm all the way through. The writer says, Praise ye the Lord. Blessed is the man that feareth the Lord, that delighteth greatly in his commandments. His seed shall be mighty upon the earth. The generation of the upright shall be blessed. Wealth and riches shall be in his house, and his righteousness endureth forever. Unto the upright there ariseth light in the darkness. He is gracious and full of compassion and righteous. A good man showeth favor and lendeth. He will guide his affairs with discretion. Surely he shall not be moved forever. The righteous shall be in everlasting remembrance. He shall not be afraid of evil tidings. His heart is fixed, trusting in the Lord. His heart is established. He shall not be afraid until he see his desire upon his enemies. He hath dispersed. He hath given to the poor. His righteousness endureth forever. His horn shall be exalted with honor. The wicked shall see it and be grieved. He shall gnash with his teeth and melt away. The desire of the wicked shall perish. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for uh, the day that you've given us, for this afternoon that we can gather together. We pray, Lord, as we preach your word, that you would open our hearts and help us to understand better what advantages we have of, of being righteous, walking in righteousness. And we thank you for the great God that you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In the first verse of this psalm, the writer uh, sets the parameters for all of the blessings of God that follow. And you really can't get to verses number 2 through 10 until uh, the righteousness of the man is established, until the person meets all of God's requirements. Verse number 1, you'll notice, says that this person fears the Lord. Most of us, I think, do understand when I say fear the Lord what that means. It really doesn't mean that we tremble and quake whenever we hear the sound of God's name, but it does mean that we have a certain awe and reverence for the name of God. 
when I, when I first read that verse, uh, read the verse, first verse of the psalm, uh, a song came to my mind that we've been singing in one of the new song programs that Brother Gary fixed for us. And uh, the, the words of the song are, I stand, I stand in awe of you. I stand, I stand in awe of you. Holy God, to whom all praise is due, I stand in awe of you. And that's what it really means to respect and to fear God's name. So this verse tells us that a man delights in the commandments of God. He doesn't fear that there's any repression because of God's word. He he doesn't feel restricted by God's commandments. But rather we understand that what God does, he really sets us free. He liberates uh, liberates us to serve him in spirit and in truth. And certainly that is what God does for us in salvation. Never do we ever fear that we're terrorized or we're victimized by the God that we serve. We're released from that tyranny of sin, and that's why we want to serve him more. But that's how the psalm starts. It starts out with a, what you call a beatitude. It's a blessing for the privilege of serving God and the blessings that are pronounced upon a righteous man. But I want to go on because I want to talk to you this afternoon particularly about some advantages that a person has when, a, when his heart is stayed upon God. I want you to notice, first of all, the comfort of a righteous man. Since we're talking about Father's Day, that's, just a, that's a week away, but it seems appropriate that the first thing that we would speak on is the children of a righteous man. If you look in verse number 2, he says, His seed shall be mighty upon the earth. And that tells us that there is a blessing for the children of a righteous man. Or his children will be mighty. And that really doesn't mean that they're necessarily going to be physically strong. It doesn't mean that there'll be conquerors in the world or great political power will, will follow the steps of a, of a man's children who is a righteous man. But what it does mean is that his children will be recognized as good, upright citizens. They'll gain some stature in the world. See, the Bible very clearly points out that there is a definite link between the righteousness of parents and the righteousness of children. A man who lives a godly life can expect something from God. A person who doesn't live a godly life, a man who doesn't live that way, need not expect that his children are going to be righteous. Now, thank the Lord for this, that God does enable uh, many children to overcome bad behavior of parents. But usually what happens, whether a parent is godly or whether he's ghastly, the children are going to walk in the footsteps. And so if a man is not godly in his own home, then he needn't expect that his children will either be godly. Uh, God gives us a a warning about this in the Exodus. I mean, there's there's plenty of proof in Scripture about it. When when the Bible says that the sins of the fathers will be visited upon the children under the third and the fourth generation. And conversely, I think it's true that a righteous man will have the righteousness reflected. It's very possible that could happen into the third and fourth generations of good godly men. Now, the idea is paralleled in Psalm 111, where it says that a righteous man is a reflection of his heavenly father. And so the parallel is that a righteous man's children will also be a reflection of the righteousness of his father. Now, I I really do think that that's a comforting thought. A person who's saved, a righteous man, has a very definite advantage with his children. His children have the opportunity to be successful in the world Uh, maybe not so much with riches and things like that, but successful in the personal relationship that he has with Jesus Christ. Now, that's really is one of the things that's taught in covenant theology. Uh, We don't agree in all points, certainly, with covenant theology, 
But uh, there is a very definite link and a definite relationship that is established in that way of thinking that the children of believers have distinct advantages over the children of unbelievers. Now, the way that the covenant theologians reflect that, or one of the ways, is through the practice of infant baptism. Now, we, of course, don't believe in infant baptism, and, uh, but they do believe that uh, the children of, of believers ought to be baptized because that will give them an advantage in their relationship with God. Well, that, that is way off. I mean, that, the Bible never promises anything like that. But the idea that there is a hedge of protection that's put again around the children of, of righteous people, I think is very definitely taught in the Scriptures. So there is a relationship. It's just that we need to understand a little bit better what that relationship is. So there is some sense in which it's true. Now, it doesn't mean that when you're born into a godly family, that necessarily, of course, means that the children will become, will become saved, they'll become righteous people. But it does definitely, in a very practical way, put the children in a place where they will have greater opportunities for hearing the Word of God, more opportunities to hear uh, the gospel being taught to them, more opportunities to be around godly people. Instead of engaging in all the, the worldly activities that children get involved with, with, uh, with parents who don't know God, the, the children of a righteous man are going to be right there in church when he brings them. They'll hear the word of God being preached. They'll have church activities instead of those worldly activities. And so certainly we could say that that is a distinct advantage. I mean, the more you hear the gospel of Christ, I don't like to put it in terms of chances, but we could say the more you hear the gospel of Christ, the more that God and the Spirit is going to work in a person's heart. So that's an advantage. It's one that ought not to be taken lightly by any parent. What you do for your children in your religious life will be reflected in their religious life. Now, let me go on because, secondly, the, uh, the righteous man brings a blessing to his companions. He says, the generation of the upright shall be blessed. Primarily, I think that's referring to children, but I think that we could also say that those people who are associated with a righteous person, they will also be blessed. I've told you a long time ago, I think it was, that when I first came to California, it was very, very difficult for me to get used to the way that we address people in church here. We call each other Mr. and Mrs. And when I was in church in Kentucky, we never even thought of that. I mean, I, I would never call Mr. Chambly, and I wouldn't say Mrs. Morrow right here. I mean, that's brother and sister. And, uh, of course, we would say that because that's what we are in a church. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. So we wouldn't think about, about addressing one another that way. Well, when you have not only is there this relationship of a, of a man to his children and the, and the advantages that you get of, of, uh, of having that kind of relationship, but also in the spiritual family, it's true as well. When you have righteous people that you can live around, work around, worship with, that's going to be an advantage to you. Recently, uh, Brother Gary and I uh, took the trip to Israel, and that was, it was really just a tremendous blessing to me to go with Gary. I mean, just, just to be around somebody that loves the Lord, when you talk to one another, your, your conversations are, are in that direction. And it, it's, a, it's just a wonderful thing to have that relationship with people that, that are upright, good people to talk with and, and be around. I have a kind of relationship like that with Larry Jefferson. He's not here, but uh, the kind of relationship that I have with him as being a Christian is not something that I seek not something I desire with somebody who doesn't know Christ. 
I mean, I, I want to be around people like that because when we talk, we talk about the things of the Lord and not all the nonsense of the thing that go, things that go on in the world. Then I also think that I'm very definitely blessed to be around the younger men in our church. It's great growing up and growing up with these men and seeing these fellows that, that love the Lord and, and dedicate themselves to service here. The young men that we have in our deacon board, that's a great blessing to me. And that just sort of rubs off on you. I mean, it just makes you feel good to have a relationship. So the companions of a righteous man are also blessed. Whenever you decide that you're going to set your heart on God, that your highest priorities are your church, your God, your family, then you can be sure you're going to be in good company with people that are like that. So we can say that people that are around godly men enjoy that special relationship. So it's comforting to have family and and friendly associations with servants of the Lord, knowing that the work of the Lord is being done and that we love one another. Now, secondly, let me talk to you about the charity of a righteous man. In verses 5 and 9, here we find some uh, noble characteristics of those that are righteous. Verse number 5 says, A good man showeth favor and lendeth. He will guide his affairs with discretion. Then in verse 9, he hath dispersed, he hath given to the poor. His righteousness endureth forever. His horn shall be exalted with honor. So what does a righteous man do? Well, he, he's generous to the needy. I think one of the hardest things that we have to do in today's society is really to determine who's needy. I mean, who is it that's really poor? Who is it that's, that's homeless? And then having uh, some kind of compassion and feeling for people that are like that. See, our situation is, is much different than it was in the Old Testament, different than it was with uh, Jesus and the apostles as well, because when people were poor in those days, they were genuinely poor. I mean, a, a poor person could hope nothing better than, than just to eke out a, a meager, eke out a meager existence. I mean, barely even to survive. But in the society in which we live, it, it's really become very difficult for us to tell who the truly needy are sometimes. I mean, the government, of course, has, uh, in a sense, has made us hard-hearted. It's made us unsympathetic. While we institute all of our social programs where we appear to be sympathetic and compassionate towards people, what we're actually doing, I think, by all the many things we do, is harden people because we think, well, the government's going to take care of everything that needs to be done. So we think, well, we see a person who's needy. Well, what do you say to them? Well, go on down to social services. Go, go to the welfare office. Pick up your check down there. They've got one waiting for you. And so we get, we get hard-hearted about it because we've seen so much abuse. The system is, seems like it's almost designed that people can live that way. But we have, still have to remember that Jesus did make a statement about it. He said, the poor you'll have with you always. So there are some of those people out there. There are genuinely poor people. Now, as I said, unfortunately, the government makes it hard for us to discern between those that are truly needy and ones that are making it on the backs of other people. I mean, everybody here knows your, your check gets taxed every week and money's taken out to, for all different kinds of things like that. So what do we do when we're faced with that? Usually, what we do as a church is we pull everything to the inside. No longer we do we do any work on the outside. We, we think about... Well, who's in the church? Who can we deal with there? If we do send money, we send money to mission projects. Let's send it overseas somewhere because there we know those people definitely do not have the advantages that Americans have, so we can send our money to them. So how do you solve that problem? 
How are we going to deal with people that are truly needy when we, we have this, this overriding feeling of they, they, why, why should we even help them because the government's going to do it? Well, I think one thing that we have to do is that we have to be sure that whenever we give something, whenever we give food, that the gospel also goes out with it. Let, let's just don't be free about giving money without also giving the gospel. I think, I mean, I know that the gospel changes lives. And I also know that, I really do believe this, that in America, I think it is very possible with the gospel of Christ that you can actually lift people out of poverty. Well, how is that possible? Well, a person who, who really knows the Lord is not somebody who's going to go down to the welfare office and cash a check that he really doesn't deserve because he knows that's not the right thing to do. The Bible teaches that we ought to work, and so that person's going to seek for work. He's going to uh, try to do something that will make his own way. Now, maybe he will need the help of someone else, but, but if we give people the gospel, they'll learn that very quickly. And as I said, I think that can actually lift people out of poverty. What we try to do, though, is we try to solve all the problems in America by throwing money at it. And so we think that people really need the hope of the government more than they need the hope of the gospel. And that's where things really need to change. So a righteous man, though, will recognize this. And I think he will be a person who will understand that giving the gospel and helping those that are needy, that's something that we really ought to do. Uh, this is one of the reasons why I believe that churches ought to stay out of the political process. I say, let's let churches do what God designed churches to do. Let's preach the gospel and do that and change the world in that way. So we can learn to be discerning. And a righteous man will be discerning with God's help. And he will develop a heart for truly needy people. This year, of course, with the election coming up, you're going to hear all kinds of promises from both parties about how much they're going to do for the poor. And what really turns out is not very much is done at all. And uh, again... Uh, what we end up doing is we just keep on feeding the system with what we're doing and really changing the lives of people. Only the gospel can do that. But not only is a, is a righteous man giving to the needy, but he also gives to his church. I mean, a righteous person is somebody who understands God owns it all. And whatever God gives you is not for the purpose of hoarding and making yourself rich. Nothing wrong with being rich, but a person who hoards everything he gets does not understand why God gives him things. God gives to us in order that we might help others. Now, what we find, though, is there are many Christians who won't give the tithe and many more Christians who won't give above the tithe. Now, what you really people need to recognize is that tithing is not sacrificial giving. Some people think that. They think giving the tithe, well, that's the big sacrifice that I have to make. But when you put your tithe check into the offering plate, that, that's really no more than paying your electric bill. I mean, you're giving what God says you already owe. So you haven't started any sacrificial giving at all until you start to give above the tithe. Now, there's where righteous man excels. I mean, he's willing to give more. He obeys God with his tithe, but he really wants to get also into the area of sacrificial giving. So the righteous man is never one who thinks, well, what I really need is a new car, and the only way that I can get a new car is to cut back on what I give to the church. The righteous man thinks this way. I need a new car, and if I continue to give, and, and by God's grace I give more, God will supply exactly what I need. Wealth is never primary on a righteous person's mind. Now, this is why I have so much distaste 
so much distaste for for the Joel Osteen types and the Kenneth Copeland types and the Joyce Myers and all of those because wealth is not primary for a righteous person. The righteous person says, I will serve God to the best of my ability. I will give what God requires. And by the way, yes, material blessings may follow, but if they don't, I'm content with godliness. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Now, that's why Paul never struggled to be wealthy. I mean, he understood the principle very well. So the righteous man gives as God requires, and he'll give more. He'll give sacrificially and also give of himself that God's work might be done. Now, finally, let's talk about the courage of a righteous man. Charles Spurgeon preached a great message on this text. And the time of his preaching was when there was a great cholera epidemic in London. A lot of things were going on in England at that time. Thousands upon thousands of people were dying from cholera. The Roman Catholic Church at that time was making inroads into Anglicanism. Now, of course, Anglicanism is the state church of England, and so that was a problem. In the midst of that, Spurgeon was also leading his church out of the Baptist Union. Now, that was a a conglomeration of churches, and, and the reason that he was leading them out of that was because they had become very modernistic. They, they really didn't believe the Bible and got into these things of higher criticism and so forth. And so Charles Spurgeon was in the middle of that, and he was watching as there were many preachers that were leaving the ministry. Some were leaving because of the modernist movement, and some of them were just simply leaving the ministry altogether. They didn't have one to do with preaching any longer. Then, on top of that, he was also living at the time when the theory of evolution was starting to gain a lot of, a lot of supporters in the world. And so... Charles Spurgeon, uh, even while uh, there were so many preachers that had kind of uh, succumbed to the teaching of evolution, tried to make accommodation for it, Spurgeon absolutely would not do that. Now, he, in his time, Bible archaeology was still supporting the truth of the Word of God, and so he took a strong stand against this, even when there were men like C.I. Schofield who didn't. Now, you may not even recognize this, but most, some of you, how many of you have a Schofield Bible? I have a Schofield Bible. Some of you have. I use it. I'm using one right now. Well, Schofield was one who made accommodations to the evolutionist. You'll notice in your Schofield Bible that uh, Schofield uh, says that if you need to stick evolution in somewhere, if you need room to put fossils in there somewhere, take the gap between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2, and you can put eons of time between those two verses, and you can accommodate evolution all that you want. Well... He was sort of surrendering to the evolutionists. And what he was trying to do was make the Bible comply with science. Well, he had exactly backwards. The Bible does not comply with science. Whenever science is going to be right, it had better comply with the Bible. But here's what, well, here's what uh, Spurgeon had to say about it. He said, he's talking about evolution, and he says, In its bearing upon religion, the vain notion is, however, no theme for mirth, for it not only, not, is not only deceptive, but it threatens to be mischievous in a high degree. There is not a hair of truth upon this dog from its head to its tail, but it rends and tears the simple ones. In all its bearing upon scriptural truth, the evolution theory is in direct opposition to it. If God's word be true, evolution is a lie. I will not mince the matter. This is not a time for soft speaking. 
So in all the midst of this turmoil that was going on around Spurgeon, I mean, we're talking about evolution, we're talking about the modernist movement, we're speaking about Anglicanism and, and everything that's going on, the cholera epidemic that's there. Here's where he began to preach on this, and he talked about a man being steadfast and being a righteous man is one who endures. Everything that comes at him, he stands strong and he endures. I think there's three statements about the courage of a righteous man that we can find here in this 112th Psalm. First of all, he doesn't fear calamity. Verse 7 says, He shall not be afraid of evil tidings. His heart is fixed, trusting in the Lord. Now, the first thing that you'll notice about that verse is that God never promised that righteous people will not have adversity. In fact, if there's anything that's clear in the Bible, is that anyone who stands for the Lord will have adversity. There'll be all kinds of tribulation. So what does a righteous man do when bad news comes? What, what does he do when the economy sours and all the investments go bad, sickness and death come to the family? What does a righteous man do in the face of hard times? Well, the first thing he does is he doesn't worry about material things. He doesn't worry about the health issues. He's never shaken by death. And there's a man in Scripture that we all know about who faced all three of those things in rapid succession. Remember Job. When, uh, when God allowed Satan to afflict Job, he lost all of his wealth in one day. His whole family was killed. All of his children were killed when a wind came and blew down the house where they were eating. And then God allowed Satan to afflict Job from the head to his foot with boils. So here you have it. Financial ruin. You have death of your family. You have your health. All of that at one time. And yet the Bible says Job never cursed God. He was a righteous man. He maintained his integrity. So a righteous man always knows this. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. He understands everything is in God's hands. So he doesn't fear calamity because he knows God will always deal with him justly. God will never do us wrong. So we need not worry about it. Now, I'm aware that some of you even here, you may face some of the same things. Times are bad. Financial ruin can be around the corner. Health issues face you. Uh, things that are going on in your family's death looms about us. But there's always the courage of a righteous man. He endures all of that because he trusts the Lord will always deal righteously with him. So he doesn't fear calamity. Then he does not fear the enemy. Verse 8 says, His heart is established. He shall not be afraid until he does see his desire upon his enemies. The wicked shall see it and be grieved. He shall gnash with his teeth and melt away. The desire of the wicked shall perish. Now, if you peek in back over to chapter 111, you find the parallel to this, and it's in verse number 6. He has showed his people the power of his works, that he may give them the heritage of the heathen. Now, the reason that he says that is he's being mindful of the victories that Israel had over Egypt and the Canaanites. We studied the book of Joshua, and we found there that every time that the people of God walked with the Lord, that God always won for them. We find many instances in the book of Joshua where great battles are fought, and yet there's no, no record of any Israelites even being killed in those battles. So this is what he's talking about. The righteous man knows that the same God who was helping them at that time is still helping today. Now remember here, the Psalms are written hundreds of years later from the time of Joshua. And so they're looking back on it, just like we're looking back on it right now. The very same God who did that will do this for us. So we also then have a picture of, of the righteous man laughing 
at the calamity of his enemies. And isn't that also a reflection of God? Because that's what the Scripture says right in Psalm chapter 2. There it says, Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then when we come into the New Testament, we find exactly the same thought. In Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 31, it says, What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. So the righteous man never fears an enemy. First, because he simply knows that death itself, even death, is transportation right into the glories of heaven. Now, according to verse number 10, he already knows that the end of his enemy is far worse. He knows what will happen to him. He shall gnash with his teeth and melt away. The desire of the wicked shall perish. So even if his enemies do triumph over his physical body, the end of the enemy is still far worse. And, of course, the reference here is to that enemy ending up in hell. In hell, there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then finally, he shows us that the righteous man has confidence in his ability. He doesn't fear calamity. He doesn't fear the enemy. And he has confidence in his ability. Now, let's see why. Verse 8 says, His heart is established. Now, to understand that, we really have to see that what it carries with it What the meaning of this is, is that this man is not trusting in his own. He's trusting in another's power. And so whatever ability and whatever power that he has, it's the same power that comes from the sustainer. It's the one that comes from the giver of all power and ability. So he has confidence in his ability only as that ability is supplied by God. In Psalm 118, verse 6, it says, The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do unto me? So we see that the righteous man has advantages. He has God on his side. He has the comfort of a good family. He has good friends. He's a a blessing to others through his giving, through his compassion, through his charity. He has the courage to face foes that are seen and unseen. And then for that short time that he's here in this life, he knows that he's waiting for incomparable blessings and fellowship with God forever in heaven. So this life is going to pass away very quickly. And just as Jesus said that no man can give up anything, no man who gives up anything is not going to find more in the kingdom that is to come. I mean, what, what could anyone ask for more? I mean, how could you ask for more? We're not deprived, certainly not deprived because we try to live a righteous life. I mean, giving up things of the world, is that really depriving a righteous person? Absolutely not. Here's what Jesus said. Verily I say unto you, there is no man that hath left house or brethren or sisters or father 
or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospel's. But he shall receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecution and in the world to come eternal life. There are so many advantages for a righteous man. Never feel, never feel like you've had to give something up because you're a Christian. You gain. You've never given anything up. You only gain when you know Jesus Christ. You have great advantages in knowing him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this psalm that we've just read and just for the blessing of knowing you. Thank you, Lord, for your church and for your people. And what a great blessing it is just to be around people who love you and people who know you. And what advantages that we have of being your children. Uh, Bless as we sing this hymn as we close our service today. Be with all of our people of our church. And we just thank you, Lord, for all that you do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.